like Americans won't wear masks. Can you imagine Americans walking around looking like bank robbers in like whipped panties? I mean, no. Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping today on Thursday, February 11th at 10.30 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined by a video conference by Paige Winfield Cunningham of the Washington Post. Good morning, Julie. Sarah Carlin-Smith of the Pink Sheet. Hi, great to be here. And Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hey, everybody. Since Valentine's Day is this weekend, we're going to keep our What the Health tradition and read some of our favorite health policy valentines after the news and before our extra credits. But first, we have a little breaking news to start. The Biden administration has officially reversed the Trump administration's position on that case now pending before the Supreme Court that would overturn the Affordable Care Act. While the Trump administration argued that the law should be struck down in its entirety, uh, a letter from Deputy Solicitor General Edwin Needler says the official Biden administration position is that if the individual mandate is found unconstitutional without its penalty, since Congress eliminated the penalty or zeroed out the penalty in the 2017 tax bill, um, the Biden administration feels that the unconstitutional mandate should be severed and the rest of the law should be allowed to stand. Now, this case was argued in November and the U.S technically isn't even a party to it. Uh, It's one group of states versus another group of states at this point. So will this letter have any impact or did they just kind of do it for show? Yeah, I mean, I don't see this having having a huge impact because it it wasn't the administration that originated this anyway. It was Texas that brought the lawsuit. So the real question is how the court considers the arguments brought by those states and then the arguments uh, defending the law, of course, by California. So, you know, and the oral arguments have already happened. So now we're just waiting uh, a ruling. I think what's more interesting is just the question of how Congress may respond to this if we have a situation where parts of the law are struck down. And as I know many of us have written about before, there's actually some relatively simple actions that they could take to try to preserve the law. Yes, and we'll talk about reconciliation in a minute, but none of none of the things that they could do are in there, as far as I know. Um, so let us do talk about budget reconciliation, because that's the biggest health policy story of the week. It is happening, or at least it's starting to happen, as a way to pass President Biden's COVID relief plan with only a simple majority in the Senate rather than the 60 votes that would otherwise be needed. Two House committees, Energy and Commerce and Ways and Means, are marking up legislation even as we speak. Normally, the Senate would be working on a separate bill, and that could still happen, or the Senate might end up taking the House bill directly to the floor as a way to speed the process, which I believe is what the current thinking is. Um, For the uninitiated in our audience, I'm going to do my 90-second reconciliation explanation um, because I see so many people getting this wrong. Um, The congressional budget process begins with a budget resolution, which is passed by by both the House and the Senate, but doesn't go to the president. The budget resolution sets out spending targets for both discretionary spending, which gets set as part of the annual appropriations process, and what's called mandatory spending. Mandatory spending includes things like Medicare and Medicaid and taxes uh, that have permanent funding and don't go through the annual appropriations process. So the term reconciliation refers to reconciling this mandatory spending to the target set by the budget resolution. 
If the resolution includes reconciliation instructions, which it doesn't always, but usually does, then the authorizing committees in Congress assemble a bill that meets those instructions. Uh, And in the Senate, reconciliation has a big advantage in that it can't be filibustered and needs only a simple majority to pass. But in the Senate, reconciliation also has a big disadvantage in that everything in the bill must pertain directly to the budget. That determination is made by the Senate parliamentarian, uh, currently Elizabeth McDonough, who's the first woman to hold that post. So first question, big picture, reconciliation was always going to be the backup for Congress and President Biden on this COVID bill in case they couldn't negotiate a bipartisan deal. It's starting to look less like plan B and more like plan A. Is there still any possibility of negotiating a deal and they wouldn't have to do this through reconciliation? I think most of us would say unlikely, though not 100 percent impossible. I mean, I think President Biden has made it clear he'd like a deal. He'd like to be bipartisan. He wants to go back to the good old days when people can find something to agree on. Reconciliation creates a bunch of other problems down the road, uh, not just political. There are some technical budgetary, not so technical. There's some other budgetary implications. You know, but we've got impeachment going on right now. And there have been some bipartisan meetings. Um, Some Republican senators did go to the White House a week or two weeks ago. As we all know, time blurs in the pandemic. I think it was a week ago. I think it was last Um, week. You know, there's talks about doing a bipartisan bill and then something else in reconciliation. There's talks about a bipartisan bill. There's talks about only a reconciliation approach. You know, I think that what happened in the Senate yesterday, we're speaking Thursday morning, one day after those videos about the insurrection came out. And I don't think we totally understand how that's going to play out in terms of how senators look at one another a week from now. Um, You know, do I think that we're about to burst out into this bipartisan harmony? No. Does the president want to give up on it yet? I don't. I doubt it. He knows he might have to because they're setting up reconciliation. There's no doubt that they're setting up that pathway. You know, it's clear. And what they're doing is they're cutting off. I mean, if they use reconciliation for this, of course, they're they're also cu- cutting off another mechanism that they could have used to try to do a broader health care reform, because this will leave just one more reconciliation bill, next year's bill in this current Congress. And of course, as there was a lot of talk about using one of the reconciliation bills for health care and one of, uh, and the second for perhaps environment or something else. Um, but now, if they have just one left next year, then the question is what what takes priority? Well, actually, they could do two because they're using the budget resolution they did was last year's budget resolution that that la- that Congress didn't bother to do. So they could do that. So this is the fiscal 2021. They're supposed to be doing the fiscal 2022 budget right now, and they could do the fiscal 2022 three budget next year in 2022. So in theory, they would have two left. But you're right, they're cutting off some of their options here. So that's a good point. I I didn't I actually have to admit, I didn't realize that they were doing last year. So I mean, that would indeed be good news for them, because what they're trying to do in this bill is, you know, kind of uh, swipe at, at, at some health expansion, health health insurance expansions. But most of what we're seeing would just be temporary and not something that would last beyond a couple of years which we're literally just about to get to. Um, So as I mentioned, the two biggest health committees in the House are proceeding to write and vote on reconciliation packages. And there are lots of things in these bills that are, shall we say, not directly related to COVID relief. Um, So let's start at Ways and Means, where the bill includes the first substantial expansion of the Affordable Care Act since its passage in 2010. Uh, It would boost subsidies both for those with very low incomes and those with higher incomes. And it would cap premium costs for everyone at 8.5% 
percent of income. The bill also includes a subsidy for people who are laid off who want to continue their employer policies using COBRA continuation, which is really expensive. But this would uh, cover, I believe, it's 85 percent of the cost of COBRA, something that Democrats had been asking for for a while. We talked last week about how reopening healthcare.gov might or might not get a big boost in people buying Affordable Care Act coverage. But this might actually have a big effect because it's real money for people, right? If you think about like the income ranges that are going to be affected by this. Um, so the biggest impact, I think, will be on people between the 133 percent, 150 federal poverty level, because right now, as things stand with the premiums, they can be asked to pay between three and four percent of their income on premiums. And what this would do is basically fully subsidize this population. And, you know, this, these are people like a family of four uh, earning between 35000 and 39000 a year. So obviously in a position where it can be difficult to afford health insurance. And then I think the other really big impact will be on people at the upper end of the spectrum, who I think have had among the most difficult times actually in affording the premiums uh, because they haven't been able to get any subsidies. And this is people actually earning in in the six figures in some cases, um, but that would for the first time have this cap on what they'd be expected to pay in monthly premiums. So, But also in the higher, you know, not just six figures, in the higher five figures where they just fall off that cliff at four times poverty and are expected to pay tens of thousands of dollars, which they can't. Right. And that's historic. Been, I think one of the shortcomings or the weakest points of the marketplace is probably is that affordability issue for sort of people in the middle there who don't have employer sponsored but can't get heavy subsidies in the marketplaces. So I think this would go a long way. But of course, all of this would only last for, uh, I believe it would be two years. And so it's not really a permanent solution to affordability. It restructures the subsidies in a way that smooths it out because right now it's based on your family's income as a percentage of the federal poverty level. But in some parts of the country, you know, $100,000 goes really far and for a family of four. In other parts of the country, $100,000 does not make you upper middle class. And insurance costs also vary. It does not cost the same thing. Even within a state, it can vary a lot from county to county, depending on how many providers and you know, if you have one dominant system and so forth. Instead of having it be a nation pegged to a national number, it's now pegged to your own family income. It's 8.5% of your family income. So this is what this is the share you have to pay so that, you know, for some people in some parts of the country will be paying way less than that and they won't get subsidized. And other people who on paper make a lot more will in fact get a bigger subsidy because they're living in a place where if insurance costs $20,000 and you're making eighty five, you need a lot more help. So some people worry that, you know, if this is too ambitious for a COVID relief bill, on the other hand, not ambitious enough, because if you do this, then rather than sort of push for more things, sort of Democrats' next objective is going to be to retain this rather than to, to expand it even further. I mean, is there this sort of danger about asking for, for both too much and not enough at the same time? It's hard to take things away from people. So if you give this assistance for two years it's hard to then for a future Congress to take it away, particularly this restructuring the subsidies. It seems to be something they should have thought about 10 years ago. It's a fairer way of doing things, a smoothed out way of doing things. So it is, it's not that Congress never takes something away, particularly poorer people are vulnerable, but it's harder to take away. The other thing, I mean, this is sort of a, we've, we, this is something we say over and over again, and because it can't be said too often, this is still about subsidizing really expensive health care. This makes out-of-pocket expenses for insurance lower for 
families and individuals. It does not bring down the cost of American health care. There's a difference between bringing down what I pay and bringing down what we as a country pay. And so this is this is making it easier for people to get insurance, to get covered, to get health care in a pandemic where people need assistance. But it isn't solving that other huge, looming, economically crushing problem that we have somehow or other have not solved. Well, Joanne, that that's a great point, because if you I mean, just look at the reaction of insurers to this. Right. Yay, like right they love the idea. Great. <laughs> yeah, they, they love the fact that like they're going to be able to have more people potentially buying their plans with the help of government money. And the idea that they absolutely hate is the idea of adding a government backed public option to the marketplaces, which, as Joanne said, I think would try to hit more at that other issue, perhaps of introducing more competition and putting pressure on the private insurers to bring down costs of their plans. But of course, that's going to be even harder to do because you're going to have this huge opposition from insurers and from the rest of the healthcare industry. And in some ways, it makes it harder, right? If you make it easier for individuals and they're not as angry, it makes it harder to take on the industry. But that's a that's a down the road issue. Well, this addresses premiums for most people. For the for the um, the the people at the very you know sort of bottom of the income scale, it helps with copayments. But for the people higher up along the income scale, these are just premium subsidies, and the, they're still huge out of pocket costs in a lot of these plans in the thousands of dollars, even if you have insurance. So I think people are still going to be plenty angry about the cost of healthcare. But you're right. It you know we'll we'll see sort of how it plays out. So meanwhile, over at Energy and Commerce, there's uh, a big chunk of money in their reconciliation package for public health, including to hire and train more public health workers, money for testing and vaccines, and for personal protective equipment, of which there is still a shortage a year later. But Energy and Commerce also has some expansions to Medicaid, including a new kind of incentive for the, I guess it's 14 states that haven't expanded yet under the Affordable Care Act. It's a federal bonus for existing Medicaid patients rather than more money for the expansion population. Any thoughts on whether this would be enough to convince like big remaining holdout states like Texas and Florida and Georgia. They'll give you, they say, a five percentage point boost, which is a lot of money for the entire rest of the Medicaid population other than the expansion group if they expand. There's so much resistance, particularly in, in Texas and Florida. And Texas just re- right before the administration, the prior administration walked out the door, they negotiated that uncompensated care fund for, I think, five years. Was that it? Anyone remember for Texas? So Texas just got a check written. Um, and Florida has a similar program. I don't recall when it was renewed or how many years they have it running. But those two states, their governors are really, really, really against Medicaid expansion. In Georgia, they're trying to do this watered down. They got permission to do this watered down a little bit of extra Medicaid, not up to the full 133% of poverty. So there's sort of a little bit of wiggle room in Georgia, not a lot. There's been some talk in the Texas legislature. There are a handful of more moderate Republicans who have talked about expansion. It does not seem to have the momentum that it would need to get over the governor's opposition. Yeah, I mean, the holdout states are the ones that these dozen states or so have resisted this now for eight years now or six years, whenever this started. Um, well, 10, basically. Yeah. Although, essentially. Yeah. Right. Well, although although the, Supreme Court, the Supreme Court ruling gave them the choice in, in right, 2012. Right, in 2012. 2012. So. so that would be, right, I guess that would be nine years. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that it's always been about financials for, for some of the conservative states because they already had a huge financial incentive to fold more people in. For places like Texas, it's been a lot more about the idea that they just don't want a lot of people on Medicaid. And they're a lot more about having Medicaid be a safety net program for only the people who need help the most desperately and not for this more expansive population. 
population. So in a way, it's been more of a philosophical versus financial issue. Although, I mean, I, I guess certainly you could argue there are going to be financial concerns if, you know, under this circumstance, the federal government is saying they would I- increase the FBAP. But again, that wouldn't last forever. Um, it would be for what? I think they said two years, the 5% increase. It's two years, right. But yeah, I don't know. I haven't talked to people in these states. I'd actually like to hear reactions from uh, from more state officials. So I don't have any like inside information, but I, I guess I'd be a little bit skeptical that this would do much to encourage them to expand. Yeah. So there's also um, other other provisions in the Medicaid package. There's a drug provision in the Medicaid package. Sarah, why why is that there? I mean, it's presumably to, to help save money, um, but they don't necessarily need to pay for this package. I, I've heard some grumbling. It's like, well, why are they using this, you know, money saver here when they might need it later for something, a bill where they actually have to pay for it? Right. I've heard the same reaction, which is you don't need pay for is in this package. Why are they doing this here? The provision you're talking about is um, Energy and Commerce wants to remove a cap on the amount of rebates drug companies pay to Medicare when they, Medicaid, sorry, when they raise their um, prices beyond inflation. It would bring in a decent chunk of money for the federal government and states. People think at least about $15 billion um, for the federal government and maybe about $7 billion for states. It's not a huge pay-for, though, in the grand scheme of things. And my understanding is there's a thought process here that the money for states is kind of particularly critical during this COVID period. So that may be why they're doing this. This isn't a consumer relief provision because in Medicaid, people already pay very little out-of-pocket for their drugs. It's not going to um, have a lot of trickle-down effects in the broader U.S. drug marketplace. But yeah, my understanding is that other drug pricing um, proposals the Democrats might want to kind of push forward that would save more money are being kind of held back because they do think there's going to be other legislative vehicles where they want to kind of take advantage of that savings to pay for other um, priorities and expansions. And Paige, you wrote about uh, there's a provision on maternal health that uh, that a lot of Democrats have been arguing for for a long time. Yeah. And actually, this is bipartisan, interestingly enough. The House actually passed it last year on a voice vote. But what this would do is it would allow states to lengthen the Uh, pregnancy-based eligibility for Medicaid. So right now, every single state is required to cover women who are pregnant and then up to 60 days after they've given birth. But then what often happens, and this is mostly in states, the dozen states that haven't expanded Medicaid at this point, then after 60 days, they can basically lose their coverage because then they lose that pregnancy-based eligibility. Um, States right now actually can ask for a waiver to expand in a couple of states have to lengthen that time. A couple of states have, but this would just give kind of this blanket permission for states to decide to lengthen. And, you know, the argument for it is that the first year after you had a baby uh, can be like a, a really taxing time for women. I say this from experience, like, you know, you can have pregnancy related complications. You're dealing with perhaps breastfeeding, perhaps postpartum depression, all kinds of things. And if women are kind of going off insurance plans and onto new insurance plans, that can discourage them from seeking medical care when they need it. And so- Or uh, off insurance plans and being uninsured. Right, exactly. I think that people, including me until I learned otherwise, when you hear the phrase maternal mortality, you think of death during childbirth. That's what I used to think it was, like, you know, death in childbirth a day later, whatever. The things we see in the movies about, you know, woman dying 
hemorrhaging. I mean, it, and it still happens, but it's rare. Actually, the maternal mortality figures that we've been talking about and the rising in the racial disparities, it's the first year after childbirth. So when doctors talk about maternal mortality, they're talking about a year. People are getting coverage for 60 days. That is not a year. So if you want to tackle maternal mortality, you need to give these women medical care not just for the moment, not just when they're in labor, but for the months. Postpartum depression is serious, but there are also physical complications and physical problems that women are at risk for for a full year. Um, and the ACA did, did, did go a long way toward fixing this by then expanding the income eligibility, but you do have these holdout states where it still can be an issue. Right. Yeah. So this is what that's trying to fix. And if you're poor enough to get on Medicaid in a holdout state, the chances of you being able to buy insurance that are going to take care of you um, are not great. Pretty small. All right. Well, let us move on to COVID. Um, cases are still dropping, but things still suck, to use a technical term. A report from Columbia University researchers estimates that on any given day, the number of infectious people is actually 10 times more than the number of reported cases. So yeah, wear your mask, wear two masks. Speaking of masks, the CDC this week finally came out with some more mask guidance, but it's not as helpful as at least I had hoped. How are we doing with the whole masking thing? Sarah, you were, you were on on Twitter talking about this yesterday. It's not, it's not very helpful, the new guidance, is it? Yeah, I find the CDC guidance interesting because it seems to all stem from a study they did testing the use of a surgical medical mask with a cloth mask over it or sort of making sure you're adjusting your surgical mask so you're getting a tight fit. But CDC still has older guidance out that still recommends against the general population using surgical masks because they say there's still shortages in the medical space. But the question then becomes, how do you translate what they found in their study to the average population? And they're saying, you know, use a disposable mask with a cloth mask over it or, you know, fit your disposable mask properly. But if you read other CDC guidance, it says that disposable masks aren't necessarily the equivalent of a surgical mask. So again, I think what the White House is trying to emphasize is this is about fit. Make sure the masks you are wearing don't have gaps. Um, try and get those nose um, bridges, which you can get in some cloth masks. Metal nose bridges really fit well because if there are gaps in your mask, it's not going to work as well. But I do think it would be really helpful for the administration to just be really transparent about the differences at this point that they know between cloth masks and sort of a surgical mask. And I was under the impression, honestly, until yesterday that the surgical looking like masks I could buy, you know, at, you know, online or at Costco or, you know, the CVS or whatever were the same thing. And it seems like maybe they're not. So I think just in terms of public trust and understanding, it's just it's so important to be very clear and explain why. And if it if some of the recommendations are because of the shortage in the medical space, again, I think they need to be transparent because people have a right to say, well, why haven't we fixed that now? And what are you doing to fix it so we could all perhaps get this better level of protection? Yeah. I mean, also there was that priceless little bit in there. I think you might've all noticed about you, if your mask doesn't fit right, you can also make like a mask holder out of a piece of pantyhose. So like, (laughs) okay, on one hand, nylons, on one hand, okay, finally something you can do with your ruined pantyhose, but we're in working at home. We're not wearing pantyhose. And could you imagine like Americans won't wear masks. Can you imagine Americans walking around looking like bank robbers and like whipped pantyhose. I mean, no, what is this like, you know, nylons lobby? I mean, I think we're all frustrated with masks. We, you know, we all have this collection of masks by now. 
We all know they don't fit perfectly. We're not sure if what we're putting on is good or bad or useless. If you try to put on two, that creates some other problems. You know, I, I bought the ones that I thought were counterfeit proof and turns out, no, they're probably counterfeit. But the, the I did too. <laughs> you know, some, some countries in the world are, are providing their citizens with masks, free, high quality. We are not doing that. You know, people won't wear them anyway. No, but at least those of us who are trying to wear them right would know that we're actually getting a mask that does its job. Yeah, and I, I, I can't believe how many times I'm, like, at the grocery store and I see people who just, like, have a bandana, like, wrapped around their, their like, nose and mouth. And, like, technically that meets the requirements of going to the grocery store, but I just feel like it does it does reflect this, like, confusion and lack of uniform guidance on what the mask. is. I thought would they be. would be our bumper stickers, you know? We've lost an opportunity. They could have been fashion statements. They could have reflected your mood on any given day. Are you a blue mask day? Are you a purple mask day? They could have said Trump or Biden and and way larger quantities than we saw. We turn them into the symbol of liberty instead of this symbol of how do we protect ourselves and each other. Vaccines are really hard. Masks should have been a lot easier. I will say, though, I always admire Nancy Pelosi's mask. I swear she has a mask to match every single outfit. She's already a very well-dressed person, and I, I have a lot of mask envy when I see, I think she's I do really too. put together with her masks. Jill Biden, too. Jill Biden has amazing masks. And it's like, you should just sell those. <laughs> All right. Well, there's a related story in The Atlantic this week by Derek Thompson called Hygiene Theater is Still a Waste of Time. And we talked about his first story on hygiene theater back last summer. It points out that we're still spending too much time, effort, and money cleaning and disinfecting surfaces when that's a really, really, really unlikely way to catch COVID. Meanwhile, we could end up spending more time at a restaurant that cleans really well um, when actually people sitting there without masks could be spreading it wildly. So you get the idea. And he makes a really good point. You can't just say follow the science because the science says different things at different times. So we, I feel like we need sort of a Dr. Fauci for the rest of the science or someone whose advice we all trust. I mean, it should be the CDC, but as we've just been saying, we're not quite there yet, are we? I was gonna say, it reminds me a lot of the criticism the media gets sometimes, which is Oftentimes we correct stories, but what you hear from people is most people never see the corrections, right? And I think that's a problem that's plaguing science right now is people hear the initial announcement, they decide, okay, this is what I need to do. And it is very hard once we tell them one thing to change the narrative and flip it. And that's what's happened a lot in this pandemic because the dynamics have changed because we're constantly learning more, because other factors, again, such as quantity of supply and so forth are shifting. I mean, I think that's, it's really the same issue with masks that's happened with the hygiene side of this as well. And as um, the story in The Atlantic rightly points out, it's not just a question of, this is sort of a futile effort in terms of spread of COVID. We're actually spending a lot of money, uh, transportation systems are spending lots of money, you know, with these crazy disinfecting processes that probably aren't doing much of anything and we're not investing maybe in better filtration systems. So it's not just about, you know, we're doing things that are kind of useless and making people feel safer. We're then not putting the money where it really matters. Julie, may you, well, you made a good point. Like we say, follow the science and we should, but what people don't realize is like, you can have the best understanding in the world of the science on something, but still not necessarily come out with some kind of coherent public policy recommendation. And it's just not that simple. And of course, not to bring up my favorite topic, but to bring up schools, you know, people say, follow the science. Well, you know, we can look at the fatality rates and the, and the infection rates among different age groups, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we have a great idea 
per se, how to approach the school reopenings or what should happen there. That actually takes a lot of different people weighing a lot of different factors, not just the virus, but also the effects of kids being out of school, et cetera. So I think that's a lot more complicated than what people have realized. If you talk to people who study issues like trust and erosion of confidence in scientists and science, it predates the epidemic. Science is incremental. Science is step by step by step. And sometimes you find out that the last step was wrong with the pandemic. Clearly, we thought it was much more on the surface. Now we know it's much more airborne. I mean, the CDC can't come out and give a statement saying, OK, everybody get dirty. That's not going to work either. But don't clean. <laughs> you can say don't clean so much. But you could you could stop hoarding Lysol wipes. Right. <laughs> but, you know, I think one of the things that People just start tuning it out. And nutrition, the science and nutrition is a really, really example. And if you, if you talk to people studying this, that's something they bring up. Eat eggs. Don't eat eggs. Eat three eggs a week. Eat, eat an egg every other day. Eat egg whites. Enjoy the whole thing. Um, bath, you know, margarine, butter, coconut oil. I mean, it's it just, it's not a pandemic, but in terms of obesity and health, it's, you know, if people start tuning it out and say, oh, they don't know anything. I'm just going to eat what I want. It harms health and it erodes confidence and expertise, which has been not just in our country. I mean, there's been an erosion of confidence reflected partly in vaccines and vaccine hesitancy around the world. But in general, there's a lack of trust in science. And we are really paying the price for that. You know, Tony Fauci is an incredibly gifted scientific communicator. But even he, you know, there are people who don't trust him because he was wrong about some things. It was a virus that no one on earth had ever seen before. That's why they called it novel. So, you know, they've learned a remarkable amount, but they were not, they didn't know everything a year ago that they know now. And some of what they know now may turn out to be wrong. I mean, we didn't have pantyhose recommendations a year ago. <laughs> Maybe next week they'll say, no, skip that one. The other thing about the hygiene recommendations, though, is the reason why it came up is we have lots of other infectious diseases where those sorts of tools matter. And so I think there might also be a hesitation to sort of say like, oh, wait, you don't need to do any of those things because if they're helping clamp down on other infectious diseases like the flu or other viruses that we normally have in the winter and keeping people from getting those, at this point, that's actually fairly valuable because our hospital systems are overwhelmed. So you don't just not want to get COVID. You don't want to get anything really that's going to send you to an overstressed health system at this point. Well, one more along the same lines. Um, there was a, a great story by my cage and colleague, Anari Patani, um, uh, about the difference between vaccine hesitancy and vaccine refusal. Uh, it's mostly about nursing home personnel who were offered the vaccine first, and many declined, not because they don't want to take it at some point, but they didn't want to be the first to take a vaccine that some feel had been rushed to market. I know medical and scientific officials have adopted the phrase vaccine hesitancy as kind of a nice way to describe anti-vaxxers. But now it seems like we really do need separate categories here, don't we? Well, I think that that's been recognized for a while, Julia, that the anti-vaxxers, very few of them are going to change their mind. It's Some might. Some who really think that childhood vaccines are dangerous might decide that the risk-benefit analysis is different for COVID and take it. But when you talk about the really diehard anti-vaxxer, not many of them are going to change their mind. The vaccine hesitant are people who are persuadable. They're not 100% persuadable, but more of them are persuadable. They can become more confident. And some people don't even like using, I forgot who I spoke to the other day. It was a scientist who said, I don't like the phrase vaccine hesitant. I want to talk about growing vaccine confidence. I mean, we're, we're getting anecdotal reports from nursing homes. I have not seen any firm data on this. But what I was told by a few state officials the other day is that they went, when they went through their nursing homes for dose one, a lot of the workers said, I don't want it. When they came back three or four weeks later for dose two, 
some of those workers said, okay, I'm ready for dose one. So that that's an example of hesitancy turning into confidence. They saw their friends and coworkers getting it. They didn't drop dead. They didn't grow horns. You know, they didn't, nothing bad happened. And they're understanding that, okay, the risks aren't so great. I want to be able to start living my life more normally. I want to be able to not infect my patients in, my, in this home. Nursing home staff has seen a lot of death. They've seen about as much death as anybody. And we also failed to do outreach. We, we didn't go in and say, ask us your questions. How can we help? I, I think this group is, is like uh, the group of the quote unquote vaccine hesitant, if we're using that term, is a very persuadable group. And the big difference I see between like the anti-vaxxers versus these people is I think there's a fundamental distrust of public health agencies and officials among anti-vaxxers. Like, they fundamentally don't actually trust the CDC or the FDA in their recommendations and they, they're a bit of conspiracy theorists. They think there's, like, some big cover-up that's going on. And I think with the vaccine hesitant, these are just people that ultimately trust public health agencies, they're just a little bit wary of like a new vaccine that hasn't been widely distributed. And so that's why it seems like there's this, um, to Joanne's point, a lot of opportunity with the vaccine hesitant to really persuade them once they see the rollout get further along. And what I think this story does a really good job of pointing out is what you do not want to do with a population that is persuadable is shame them because shame is going to turn people off. And that is what we're seeing a lot now is people are being really harsh um, and kind of blaming folks and making it personal. And if instead you approach it from a mindset of, okay, let's sit down, have a conversation. You tell us what your concerns are. We provide you with the best information we can. You can change minds. But if you start out sort of framing someone as the evil enemy, we know from experience with um, vaccines, you don't get anywhere. And I think all of us remember during Ebola, um, we had we all heard stories about particularly pediatricians who were getting phone calls saying, you know, I want my child to have the, the, the Ebola vaccine. And the doctor would say, well, there's really isn't Ebola in America. Plus, we don't have an Ebola vaccine, but I'm happy to give your child that flu vaccine that they're overdue for. And the parent would say, oh, no, that's we don't want that. So, you know, it, it, and the other point is it's um, it's not only a left or a right thing. There are anti-vaxxers across the political spectrum. There are many different reasons people are anti-vaxxers. Some of them don't trust the government. Someone, some don't trust the pharmaceutical companies. Some think that it's good for your child's that really this exists. It's part of their spiritual growth that they have to be exposed to certain things. So there's all different kinds of strains of why people come to believe that vaccines are harmful. All right. Well, that is the news for this week. Um, this being the week of Valentine's Day, we're going to share our favorite, at least so far, they're obviously all still coming, health policy Valentines. For those of you who aren't into this particular tradition, it was dreamed up by health policy nerd extraordinaire Emma Sando, who at the time worked for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services and now helps run the Medicaid program in North Carolina. And it has, since it started a decade ago, taken on kind of a life of its own. We will be featuring some of our favorites on the KHN homepage. Just remember to tag your entries on Twitter with hashtag health policy valentines, all one word. And we're going to go around now with our favorites here on the panel, at least so far. Um, I'm going to start because mine is from Emma herself in honor of her favorite program. And it goes like this. Just like Medicaid, I don't terminate your eligibility with me until the end of the PHE. That's public health emergency for you non-nerds. <coughs> Joanne, you have another one from, from 
from Emma, right? I also have one from I didn't think they were as good this year in general, maybe because we're just not feeling funny during the pandemic and maybe because it's really hard to to rhyme with reconciliation. But this is also... <laughs> There's still days to go. <laughs> this is also another short, sweet one from Emma, who in addition to being someone we know professionally, she's our friend. And it's Emma says, will you join my bubble? Oh. <laughs> Paige, what's yours? <laughs> Uh, okay, so mine's from Ariel Levin Becker, and hers goes like this. Roses are red. It can't be denied. Your mask does no good when your nose is outside. <laughs> <laughs> I endorse that one. Sarah. So mine is a long one, and that's partially why I, I picked it. I liked the um, effort and creativity that had to go into this. It's from Ben Moskovich at Pew, and it brings up a number of health policy issues from the past, an opinion about studies. But anyway, it goes... Unlike compounded drugs that cause meningitis or bad stents that led to myocarditis, our love I do say it isn't defective. Data can prove it, but it's not perspective. It's based on real data from our world where it came, like safety examined from using a claim. Wow, he put a lot of time into that one. <laughs> right. I mean, I had to, that's, I just, I wanted to really recognize that he, he went all out. There's still three days before Valentine's Day, so, so get to it, guys. All right, now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the link to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash what the health. Sarah, let's go in reverse order. You go first. Sure. So my piece is, um from Jonathan Cohn at the Huffington Post. It's called Delay Second Dose, a Guide to the Latest COVID-19 Vaccine Debate. This is an issue I've been tracking since the Pfizer data and its trial first came out. And it seems to show that people get a decent benefit, maybe about 50%. Some people suggest perhaps more from just getting one dose of the vaccine. Because of the limited supply of vaccines has raised this issue now for a couple months of should we be vaccinating more people just with one dose and either delaying the second dose longer than was studied in trial or perhaps even prioritizing one dose so we get more people with some level of immunity and what would be the impact of that. And it's so far the U.S. has taken a stance that, no, we really need to follow what we know from the trials, and that is two doses get the higher level of protection. Other countries like the United Kingdom have taken a different approach. I got kind of excited when Biden released their COVID-19 plan. They indicated they were going to explore dose-sparing strategies. So I thought maybe they would at least do like a study, a clinical trial, and test this, which is what we really need, I think, for the U.S. to decide it might change. Its ways is they would will probably really only do that if we get more solid data. It doesn't seem like they plan to do that at this point, so I think we probably are going to stick with it. But I think there's some perception that we're going to have enough vaccine now in the U.S. and things will be fine. But this globally, we I mean, this is a huge problem in terms of amount of doses. So I think having a trial to figure out is one dose okay for certain people, say, if you've already had um, a COVID infection would be really critical. Um, So the frustrating thing for me following this and talking to researchers is that we're just going to keep arguing and going in circles about the pros and cons unless we actually do a little bit more research to really answer the question. 
No, maybe England will do it for us. Uh, Paige. <laughs> yeah. So mine, mine is a piece in The Atlantic called Frustration is Spreading Faster Than the Vaccine Is, and it's by Ann Applebaum. This was a great piece, but I would say I actually think the vaccine rollout has gone a little bit better than maybe we've, we've said, where it's actually going quite well. But what Ann does is a really kind of humorous job of walking through her effort to get the shots for her parents who are 81 and 83. And she lives in Maryland. Of course, they should be eligible for the shot. And she's kind of walking through how she's like searching at all these different places. She's trying to get an appointment. She can't get appointments and kind of chronicling the chaos of trying to get a shot. And this made me think of like a couple of um, things that friends and family members have recounted to me. You know, I had a friend who's my age. She has a, she has asthma. So she t- shouldn't actually technically be like, she's in like the 1C category. So she shouldn't be eligible for the vaccine, but she had signed up with the, with a city for the shot in December, gets a call like a week ago to show up at this clinic, you know, in within 48 hours and ends up getting the shot of the vaccine. No explanation for why she was able to get in line. And yet, you know, my husband's 85-year-old uncle, who also is in Virginia, hasn't been able to get a shot. So in a lot of ways, it has seemed a bit chaotic and uh, a bit piecemeal and a bit confusing as to why certain people are getting shots and other people aren't. But it was a really funny piece, so I recommend it for anybody who wants a humorous look at all of this. And Applebaum, of course, who's lived, you know, in, in many communist bloc countries, compares it to being in the Soviet Union in 1975, which was very on the nose. Joanne? There's a piece in The New Yorker by Atul Gawande, um, and it's called, it's got a long title. Inside the worst hit county, in the worst hit state, in the worst hit country, it's about a county in North Dakota, which I believe is pronounced Minot. It's a story of this sort of small community, hard hit community wrestling with masks and other things. And although these are stories that we're familiar with, it it doesn't demonize anybody with one possible exception. I mean, some of the people who, it's just people wrestling with trying to figure out what's right. And some of them didn't want mandates, although they personally were wearing masks and the people weren't, it wasn't all predictable. It was, it, it just sort of let you see how a small community is, you know, some of the myths that people still believe or some, they're not very good at numbers saying, you know, well, only one out of 99 people dies. That's a lot, you know? And, you know, if you don't know anyone who died, it seems different than if you do. It is. And in the wonderful Atul Gawande way, he sort of spins the yarn. Um, Mine is from the Washington Post. It's called, Oh, We're Still in This. The Pandemic Wall is Here by Maura Judkiss. It's about how this winter is so much harder for many of us than even the previous 10 months were. I thought it was just me, but a Apparently, the uncertainty about maybe things are getting better, but we're not sure when is making a lot of us, to paraphrase the story, spiritually and emotionally exhausted. A lot of us are hitting that marathoner's wall, but unlike in a marathon where you know how many miles are left, we're not sure if this is mile 20 or mile 10. So at least you know that if you're having trouble coping right now, you have plenty of company. So that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks as always to our ace producer Francis Ying who makes us sound good even when we're in different places. Also as always you can email us your comments or questions we're at whatthehealth all one word at kff.org or you can tweet me I'm at jrovner. Paige at pw underscore Cunningham. Joanne at Joanne Cannon. Sarah at Sarah Carlin. We will be back in your feed next week. Please celebrate Valentine's Day safely and as always be healthy. Be healthy.